This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Fuss, an investor at Ironic Capital. And today we're breaking down Constellation Software. Constellation is a software conglomerate that owns more than 500 vertical software businesses. It was founded by Mark Leonard in 1995 and has delivered remarkable returns to its shareholders since going public on Toronto Stock Exchange in 2006. To break down Constellation, I'm joined by Chris Cerrone, a partner and portfolio manager at Aukri Capital Management. We discuss Mark Leonard's unique approach to building the business, why Constellation could be considered the gold standard for its employee compensation policies, and how the business has honed its acquisition engine to enable upwards of 100 acquisitions per year. Please enjoy this breakdown of Constellation Software. Chris, thank you for joining us to break down Constellation Software. I think where I want to start is, if you take a step back and reflect, the tasks of a business executive and an investor are pretty comparable. You want to take a pool of capital, redeploy it at rates in excess of your cost of capital. And so what kind of struck me is in preparation for this conversation, I had the opportunity to read a handful of Constellation Software's letters. And it was interesting in that they talked about both allocating capital at a high rate of return, but also running a lean and efficient organization in a way that you generally don't see conveyed from someone that's operating a business. And so I think where we should start is just to hear more about your history with this business how long you've been studying it closely and what has kept you guys involved with this company now? Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. We're all frequent listeners of Business Breakdowns. So this is an honor for me and will be a lot of fun. Our firm has been a shareholder on behalf of our clients in Constellation Software since 2014. And we made our initial investment after discovering the shareholder letters that you referenced written by founder and CEO Mark Leonard, which in our opinion are rich with insight, they're honest and transparent, and they convey a tremendous amount of humility, curiosity, and open-mindedness. We could see immediately that this was a singular founder and that constellation fit our investment criteria really well. So we made an investment just a short time later. For quick background, our firm seeks to concentrate our capital in a small number of what we believe are exceptional businesses, which we define according to a trio of criteria. First, businesses that generate sustainably above-average returns on capital made possible by competitive advantages that we can understand and judge to be durable. Second, management teams who, as you alluded to in your question, are skilled at both operating businesses and allocating capital, and who, just as importantly, we trust to be honest and treat shareholders as partners. And then third, businesses with a significant opportunity to redeploy the excess cash flows generated by the business at high rates of return. So Constellation, in our opinion, epitomizes this trio of criteria which you'll also sometimes hear us refer to as our three-legged stool. For those who are not familiar with the business, could you briefly describe what Constellation is and why you feel it's worth studying in detail? If I were to describe Constellation to someone who's never heard of the business or Mark Leonard, I would start by saying that Constellation acquires and plans to be the perpetual owner of hundreds of small to medium-sized vertical market software businesses. Like so many of the great acquisition-driven compounders, 
the essence of Constellation's management style is decentralization. Constellation's allowing the businesses it acquires to operate with significant autonomy, limiting itself to the role of coach, mentor, hypothesis generator, and disseminator of best practices. Unlike most other acquisition-driven compounders, Constellation extends this ethos of decentralization beyond operations into the realm of capital allocation as well. Constellation makes dozens and sometimes more than 100 small acquisitions each year. And the vast majority of these are sourced and approved by executives who do not sit in the head office, but are instead part of the operating groups that make up Constellation. So that head office and the board have delegated authority to approve really all but the largest deals. Finally, the uniqueness of Constellation is in large part a reflection of its singular founder and CEO, Mark Leonard. For example, this emphasis on decentralization reflects Mark's belief in the power of small teams and entrepreneurship and his distaste for authoritative rule. Likewise, Constellation's approach to capital allocation, which involves making dozens of small software acquisitions, most less than $10 million in size and at multiples around one or two times revenue, is a reflection of his value investor orientation. And to your earlier point, Zach, Mark is both a highly astute operator of businesses and has a track record to suggest that he should be considered one of the very best capital allocators of our time, which is, of course, an exceptionally rare combination. And then finally, I would just add that in our eyes, Mark has a highly developed sense of trusteeship and moral responsibility to shareholders. And so if you put this all together, what do you get? Constellation was founded in 1995. And in the 17 years since its IPO in 2006, Constellation has compounded its share price at 34%, such that its share price today is 130 times that IPO price. So well past 100 bagger status. This is a business that's delivered extraordinary returns for shareholders, but started nearly 30 years ago. I think it'd be super interesting to hear more about how we got to where we are today. Early on in Mark's career, he was actually an intern at an investment bank, Barclays. And a mentor sized him up and said, look, Mark, you're going to make a terrible banker. Why don't you go and study the firm's clients and see if anything jumps out at you as a career path that you might like to pursue? And this process led him to venture capital, which appealed because there were some pretty impressive stories about venture capital playing roles in the creation of these big, wonderful companies. However, when Mark joined the venture world, he discovered some important shortcomings in that model of investing. It was difficult to focus narrowly enough on a specific industry in order to become a subject matter expert. The investment returns were erratic and not especially impressive. He had this insight that high growth businesses often fail to develop into businesses that generate high returns on capital. And the fundamental idea of venture capital is that you're building things that can be sold to other people. And I think that's a very different mindset from building something permanent where you can build a business or relationships that last for a lifetime if you want them to. These ideas of permanence and compounding really appealed to him. And so he was unfulfilled in the VC world. At one stage in his VC career, Mark was experimenting with ways to make the venture model work a little bit better. And he had this idea that you could first find a great manager and then find them a business to run. One of these managers that he identified was Steve Scotchmer, who had been an advanced materials engineer and then had also successfully run a business in that same space. And Mark and Steve searched together for a business that Steve could run and that Mark could invest in. But what Mark discovered as they were going along was that Steve's bar for business quality was exceptionally high. 
And they actually never found a business that met that criteria. But in the search process, Steve became an important mentor to Mark and taught him about great business models. He was feeding him literature from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And that all caused Mark's perspective to pivot. And he went back through the firm's venture portfolio with this new lens for business quality and really zeroed in on the vertical market software businesses that they had invested in. And VMS, to him, checked all the boxes, except for the fact that they were small and they really couldn't absorb much capital. So he came up with this idea of creating a permanent capital vehicle to acquire and hold these businesses forever. And that was really the genesis of Constellation Software. And just as a postscript, Steve Scotchmer joined the Constellation board in 2000 and was a director through 2021. And so in all, he's been a mentor to Mark for over 35 years and probably should be recognized as an unsung hero in the Constellation story. And so if we were to zoom out a bit, I just want to make sure that we set the basis of understanding for what vertical market software is, or as you refer to as VMS, in relation to enterprise software businesses that our audience is likely familiar with. Vertical market software is highly customized to address the unique needs of a very particular industry. So within the Constellation portfolio, for example, you have software companies designed to help run public transit systems, a mid-tier utility company, a home builder, tennis clubs. And in aggregate, Constellation serves more than 100 of these different niche verticals, the two largest of which are transit and healthcare but no single vertical is really material to the overall company. And as you think about what did Mark see, why did vertical market software really epitomize business quality? It's really a handful of factors here. The first is that VMS businesses really understand the unique needs of the specific customers, and they're customizing those products accordingly. So VMS product becomes essential to the day-to-day operations of its customers which means the switching costs are very painful. Customers tend to stick around for a very long time, which can translate into annuity-like customer relationships. Constellation retains, we believe, a mid-90s percent of its customers year-to-year, implying a 20 to 30-year customer relationship on average. Vertical markets tend not to attract very much competition because the addressable market sizes are small, often measured in the tens of millions of dollars, which are much smaller than the multi-billion dollar addressable markets targeted by the large enterprise software companies that a lot of us are accustomed to thinking about when we think about software like Salesforce and Oracle and SAP. And so in other words, the upfront costs necessary to fund a new entrant are really difficult to justify given the small size of the markets and the presence of these well-entrenched incumbents already. Constellation doesn't disclose how much pricing contributes to its revenue growth anymore, but when they did, it tracked consistently in the mid to high single digits. So there's this pricing power in these businesses supported by that essential nature of the product, the limited competition, and the fact that VMS tends to only cost less than 1% of a customer's revenues. So they're essential products that fly under the radar. Another factor that makes these really interesting, attractive businesses is that VMS, like most software businesses, is sold either as an upfront license followed by ongoing maintenance payments or on a subscription basis, which results in very nice recurring revenues. So for Constellation, 70% of their revenues are recurring. And then finally, VMS are often able to grow without consuming much capital, which allows the excess free cash flow to be reinvested in future capital deployment. In the case of Constellation, these cash flows fuel an acquisition engine that has consistently produced really high returns on capital. And I think it's interesting to step back and note that some of the most impressive long-term business compounding stories have been conglomerates that have assembled portfolios of many small vertical market software businesses under the oversight of a skilled capital allocator, speaking to the attractiveness of VMS. So that would include Constellation, Roper Technologies, Tyler Technologies, and Jack Henry. Mark has constructed what's a portfolio of hundreds of acquisitions of these niche vertical market software businesses, which sounds like something that's inherently difficult to scale. How big is this business? Revenue is roughly $6.5 billion. And that number has compounded at 24% since the IPO and 22% since 
over the past 10 years. About 10% of the revenues are generated in Canada, and Constellation is headquartered in Toronto and actually trades on the TSX exchange. 40% of the revenues are in the US, about 40% in Europe and the UK, and the remainder in other regions. And then Constellation has 32,000 employees with a pretty similar geographic distribution. As I mentioned, the $6.5 billion of revenue is split with 70% recurring, coming from either maintenance contracts or subscription payments. And then the other 30% are lumpier professional services, upfront licenses, and hardware sales. And so we pay close attention to organic changes in that 70% piece as the revenues are ongoing, they're predictable, and they grow nicely over time. On that $6.5 billion of revenues, Constellation generates free cash flow a little bit north of a billion dollars. Free cash flow is compounded at 26% since the IPO and 23% over the past 10 years. Free cash flow margins are roughly 20%. And importantly, Zach, this is a clean, unadjusted number. Constellation is paying its employees in cash and has no stock-based compensation So I would just say you have to be careful comparing this margin to other software companies that might be excluding some big equity compensation figures from their adjusted free cash flow metrics or burying some net share settlement cash outflows in their cash from financing sections. Returns on invested capital are roughly 20%, which closely reflects the equity IRR hurdle rates that they target on their acquisitions, which generally range from between 20 and 30%. So we think in terms of a pretty simple growth algorithm, if Constellation can continue redeploying most of its free cash flow at 20% or better returns on capital, that should translate into a mid-teens or better rate of per share compounding over time. Can you spend more time talking about how the incentive structures work there and why they don't issue stock-based comp in the way that their contemporaries do? This is, I think, one of the key differentiating factors about Constellation. The headline across the top of the page would read that Constellation hasn't issued any shares in its history as a public company. It's financed its growth with cash from operations plus very modest amounts of debt. There's been zero stock-based compensation. And the history here is pretty interesting I believe the reason why Mark is so conscious of the value of Constellation shares goes back to an early mistake, which he actually refers to as one of his biggest failures as the leader of this company. In 1995, he raised an initial $25 million to get Constellation off the ground, mostly from a single investor. And then in 1999, he raised an additional round of capital, mostly just to diversify the investor base. They really didn't need that capital and ultimately returned some of it in the form of a special dividend. But of course, the dilution was permanent. And that decision to issue that second capital raise has cost shareholders literally billions in value over the years. That was the last time Constellation issued any equity. And so instead, they pay cash bonuses, and they require that a significant portion of the after-tax proceeds be used to purchase common shares on the open market. And then those shares are held in escrow for an average of four years. For executives, the percentage of after-tax bonuses that must be invested back into common shares is 75%. And for non-employee members of the board of directors, the entirety of their after-tax board fee must be used to purchase common shares. Based on the upward trajectory of Constellation's stock price over the years and this multi-year mandatory holding period, there's almost always a meaningful unrealized gain when these shares are released from escrow, which has been a disincentive to sell and has resulted in employees, executives, and board members all becoming meaningful shareholders in the company. Mark himself is not paid a salary or a bonus. He and his family are the largest shareholders in Constellation with roughly 7% of the shares outstanding. And his compensation comes entirely from building the value of those holdings over time. And so in sum, 
constellation in my eyes represents the gold standard in terms of a compensation philosophy that aligns management employees with long-term shareholders and the management information circular that explains the compensation policy is easy to read and clearly not written by a compensation consultant. I want to think a little bit more about how Constellation is different from other software companies, especially from an investor's perspective. When you think software, as a generalist, people tend to bias themselves to what they call rule of 40 stories. And the rule of 40, for those who are not familiar, is effectively that a software company should be valued in line with its peers if its growth rate plus its margin are in excess of 40. And when it drops below that, it's going to start to tend to trade at a discount to its peers. I kind of put to you in the context of Constellation, how you think about the role of 40 and if it's even at all applicable given the idiosyncrasies of their business model. When you first look at the numbers, you'll say the margin on earnings before interest tax and amortization for Constellation is about 25%. And the organic revenue growth number is roughly 4 or 5%. So that sums to a high 20s or 30% number. And it looks like Constellation falls short of this rule of 40 heuristic. But I do think, to your point, that we need to make sure we're looking at it on an apples to apples basis. And the biggest differentiator is this cash compensation approach that Constellation has. A Canadian investment bank recently did a deep dive on stock-based compensation for software companies. The sample size was 73 companies. And they found that the median free cash flow margin was 15% excluding stock-based compensation but only 1% including stock-based compensation. So that's a quite big difference. It's really the rule of 25 if you include stock-based compensation or if you tried to transfer stock-based comp into a cash cost. And so then on that basis, with Constellation's 25% EBITDA margin plus the organic growth in the 4 to 5% range, I think it actually does exceed this rule of 40 metric I would presume that a business model as successful as this would also attract imposters. I just want to learn a little bit more about what the barriers are or potentially the differentiators that bestow Constellation with this competitive advantage that's allowed them to do upwards of 100 acquisitions a year at the scale that they are at today. In Mark's typical humble style, he once wrote in a shareholder letter, that the barrier to starting a conglomerate of vertical market software companies is a checkbook and a telephone. And that reminds me of something that Henry Kravis likes to say, which is don't congratulate us when we buy a company. Any fool can overpay and buy a company. Congratulate us when we've done something with it and we've created some real value. And so while Mark is technically right about a checkbook and a telephone, And there are plenty of copycats and private equity buyers to prove that. The real accomplishment here is generating the consistently high rates of return on what has now scaled up to dozens, if not more than 100 vertical market software acquisitions every single year. And I think the way we approach this conversation, I think we probably start by level setting and explaining the way that Constellation has decentralized its capital allocation. And then from there, maybe we can touch on what we think are the three legs of the acquisition engine competitive advantage that works for you. That would be fantastic. So for Constellation, most of the time when they acquire a small VMS business, it becomes what they refer to as a business unit. And that business unit will continue to operate with significant autonomy to make the day-to-day business decisions. And there are now hundreds, if not a thousand or more of these business units, and they roll up into six operating groups, which also enjoy significant freedom from the head office. And while decentralized operations are not necessarily unique in the world of high-performing conglomerates, Constellation may be unique in terms of the extent to which it has also decentralized its acquisition activities. During Constellation's first 10 years, as a business, 
Mark Leonard and Chief Investment Officer Bernie Anzaruth presided over the M&A activities and the acquired businesses all reported into the head office. But Mark and Bernie pretty quickly realized that they weren't going to be able to keep tabs on the growing portfolio of businesses from head office and that the universe of potential acquisitions was much larger than they had originally thought. At this point, we estimate that the number of vertical market software businesses in their database is in excess of 50,000, just to give you an idea. And so they began delegating some of the M&A responsibilities down to six lieutenants, each in charge of a collection of businesses that we just referred to as operating groups. But the head office really still retained final say on acquisitions. Then over the next 10 years, those operating group heads became very proficient at M&A and were ultimately granted authority to approve M&A transactions up to a certain threshold, which is now $20 million. Today, nearly all acquisitions are approved by the operating group heads. And the operating groups are getting to a size where they can't manage the M&A from their head offices. So have begun to push the responsibility down within their respective organizations. They still have final say on acquisitions, but over time, this will likely change such that there are dozens of leaders within Constellation empowered to approve transactions up to a certain size. I think this degree of decentralization on capital allocation and on operations is in part due to pragmatism on the part of Mark. And it's also, interestingly, a function of Mark's personality. He just doesn't like anyone telling him what to do. He enjoys being convinced to change his position, but he doesn't want somebody to come into the room and say, I'm the authority figure. This is the way that you're going to do it. I actually once heard Mark cite the New Hampshire license plate motto, live free or die. He's very careful not to push bureaucracy or values down to the operating groups. What's interesting from my perspective is playbook seems pretty obvious. And so I think to myself, if I had the privilege of taking a billion dollars and buying a bunch of these businesses, why can't I just recreate what they've already done? What is truly the special sauce inherent in their business? So I would break it down into three pieces, discipline, data, and then the preferred acquirer status. And just to hit each of these in turn, on discipline, we believe that Mark is fundamentally a value investor. And we'll come back to this when we talk about his potential foray in the future into non-vertical market software. But Mark is very quantitative and he's very disciplined. And Constellation strictly adheres to hurdle rates. The hurdle rates are between 20 and 30% for the small and medium-sized acquisitions they do. And they're modestly lower than that for very large acquisitions where they can deploy a significant amount of capital all at once. And proposed deals that are marginally beneath the hurdle rates do not get approved. Mark believes that if you lower the hurdle rate to accommodate a few marginal acquisitions, you'll cause the returns on all of your acquisitions to drop. And he refers to this phenomenon as hurdle rates being magnetic, or that lowering hurdle rates is like crossing the Rubicon, you just can't go back. The second piece is data. And the beauty of owning a thousand vertical market software businesses is that Constellation has an incredible amount of data. What works, what doesn't work. Their domain expertise is deep and it's proprietary. And I think it would be very hard to replicate. For those who are familiar with Michael Mobison's work on base rates, Constellation has its own proprietary base rate data specific for small and medium-sized vertical market software businesses. Accumulated from hundreds of acquisitions to this point. And that advantage is the most pronounced in messier situations. So if you take, for example, a $5 million vertical market software company with 30% EBITDA margins and steady organic growth, in other words, a pretty healthy VMS business, it's a pretty straightforward business to value. It's not going to require much work after the fact. It's quite likely that a private equity buyer will come in and outbid Constellation and win that deal because of either assumptions about selling for a higher terminal multiple 
the ability to use leverage or underwriting a lower IRR. But let's say that that $5 million VMS is operating at breakeven instead, or maybe the organic growth is lagging. Now Constellation has the upper hand because they can look at every business they've ever acquired and benchmark this breakeven business to those that look the most similar and say, hey, you know what? The R&D team is twice as big as it needs to be. Or this owner-operator hasn't increased prices on their maintenance contracts in 10 years. is way below market. And they can have a very credible path to improvement based on data that nobody else has access to and can act with conviction that a private equity firm that maybe has done only 25 VMS deals, it just couldn't do. And then quickly on the third leg of the stool, the preferred acquirer status, Constellation is offering a permanent home for the businesses that it acquires. And so entrepreneurs who care about their people, who care about their customers, may not want to sell to a financial buyer who's going to add leverage, cut expenses, resell the business in five years. We know that Berkshire Hathaway and Markel are two other successful examples of this preferred acquirer who may not pay top dollar framework working well. So there's a little bit of pattern recognition for us here. And one of Mark's biggest regrets, other than that unnecessary second capital raise that we talked about earlier, was selling one of their vertical market software businesses early in the history of Constellation. They bought this business. It was doing well. They liked the team, but they were offered just an extraordinary price for it by a ventureback.com. And so they decided to sell it. They saw it as a quick win. They hugely regret that now. They would never take a quick win. They're way more confident today in their abilities than they were back then. They check on that business periodically and would love to buy it back to reverse the mistake since it's the only example of them selling a business that they acquired. And to mark that reputation of being a good perpetual owner is just really important to him. And maybe just to extend upon that question, historically, they don't sell assets. It's a famously private company in the way they operate. Obviously, it's a publicly listed business, but they have started to spin off assets. And so I'd love to just explore a little bit of why. They have done one spinoff as of this conversation. And it's possible that by the time the conversation is posted, they will have completed the second. The first was of a business called Topicus. And that is operating in Europe predominantly. And the second is called Lumine. And that is a vertical specific spin focused on telecommunications in the media industry. I think that there's probably a little bit of misunderstanding as it relates to why Constellation is spinning off these entities. If Topicus had been available for purchase in the same way that they acquire most of their other businesses, I think they probably would have done that. In this specific case, Topicus's management team wanted the name to live on as a public company. And TSS, which was the operating group within Constellation that acquired Topicus, itself had been acquired in a unique fashion where they used ring-fenced debt to help boost the equity IRRs. So the structure lent itself really well to doing this acquisition and then spin. In the future, the company has said that they're unlikely to spin off operating groups. So I don't think you'll see a starburst where the six operating groups that exist today suddenly become six independent publicly traded constellations. But what they might do is what they're doing with Lumine, where they could spin a vertical in conjunction with a large acquisition. The advantage to structuring a deal this way is it allows Constellation to provide both a cash component to the deal, but then also an equity component in the purchase price, which makes the bid a little bit more competitive with private equity, who can offer the seller a second bite at the apple in five years when they sell that business again. And then you get the added bonus that the acquired company shareholders feel that sense of pride in becoming a public company that will remain public and not subject to any sort of future takeover risk as long as Constellation is a significant shareholder. So we watch those very carefully. Constellation remains highly involved in these spun-out entities after the fact. They have special voting interests. Uh, they have majority ownership stakes. It's a very 
interesting next chapter in the evolution of this business for sure. So I think next chapter is an interesting choice of words. We've done a good job highlighting what got us to this point. But if we look forward in the environment for acquiring these software companies at the size and scale at which they operate, it's seemingly only going to get more difficult. And the ability to do so at the IRRs that they're accustomed to presumably will not come as easily. How does that impact the way they go about their business? Are they going to lower their hurdle rates? Are they willing to expand beyond EMS? Take us through what the next couple of years potentially look like and some of the key decisions that need to be made. I think that this is probably the single most interesting, intellectually stimulating conversation that we can have about Constellation. Mark in the head office did a study of a dozen high-performing conglomerates. And the conclusion was that these businesses follow a predictable multi-decade pattern. In the early days, they generate exceptional returns on capital, both on their organic investments and also by making attractively priced acquisitions. But that as time goes on, they become significantly larger. They're forced to pay higher multiples for larger acquisitions. That brings down those returns on capital. Now, even those diminished returns on capital are better than the returns on capital for the S&P 500, but there was a very clear reversion towards the mean. And Mark has admitted that Constellation will experience some decline in returns on capital as it scales. We've witnessed that. You can see that in the numbers. The returns are not as high as they used to be. And just to frame that challenge, Constellation has invested roughly $6 billion in acquisitions going back to 2005. Today, the annual free cash flow is roughly 20% of that amount. So for Constellation to reinvest all of their free cash flow, they're going to have to deploy as much in the next four or five years as they did in the prior 20. I think this is the big question. And you touched on a couple components. One, they have signaled that they're willing to lower hurdle rates on large deals. And they've also discussed potentially moving outside of vertical market software if they find a deal that is compelling and meets their return hurdles. First, let's start with the prospect of expanding beyond vertical market software and maybe the muscle that they've built in their acquisition engine and why it should enable them to do that successfully or not. The issue of non-BMS acquisitions is really interesting. It is something that Mark has alluded to as a possibility for a number of years. And most recently, he commented on this possibility in the 2021 letter to shareholders where he was talking about lowering hurdle rates and ways for Constellation to continue to deploy as much of its free cash flow as possible, even if that's in ways that are a little bit different than how it has historically. Mark warned in this letter that this could be very uncomfortable in the early going. I think it's important to remember that Mark is a value investor at heart. And so we would expect any sort of non-VMS acquisition to be highly contrarian, probably an eyebrow-raising type of transaction. During the 2022 shareholder meeting, he mentioned that he had come close to acquiring a thermal oil business for a billion dollars. And it was a time when the sector couldn't get any sort of financing. He saw it as an opportunistic situation that would have come with tax advantages. There was a clever structure involved. And he essentially asked shareholders for the benefit of the doubt. And I think he has earned the credibility. I think, to your point, I would not limit the credit we give to Mark on capital allocation just to vertical market software. And we can talk about this, but they've done well in some other sort of non-traditional capital allocation formats, including buying stakes in public companies and essentially running an activist playbook. He's talked in the past at one event in particular about his own personal portfolio and the type of IRRs that he's got in investing in very different types of situations. I think bottom line is that Mark is a terrific investor, but he is a value investor. And so watch out. If they announce a non-VMS deal, it might get spicy. I would love to see what is inside the public equity portfolio of Mark. It really would be fascinating what his returns have been. 
I think maybe that brings us to the question around capital allocation more broadly. Clearly, they've done a fantastic job. The concept of not issuing shares, but instead requiring that their employees and board directors purchase them in the open market is unique. The idea of not issuing stock for the purpose of acquisitions is unique. To the extent they use their balance sheet at all, I would love to hear. But also, to what extent do they repurchase shares? If you'll indulge me for a moment, we think about this idea of trusteeship with Constellation as being a really important factor in our decision to invest back in 2014 and staying with him for all of these years. Phil Fisher wrote about this issue a long time ago, and he basically posited that you should really only invest in businesses where the management team has this highly developed sense of moral responsibility to shareholders, and that this idea of trusteeship is a higher standard than what's required by law. I think we all would associate Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger with that higher standard, and I would absolutely put Mark right up there next to him. In terms of buybacks, for example, the conversation about Constellation potentially repurchasing its shares up until now has been mostly a theoretical one because the shares have been rarely undervalued and their focus has been on deploying as much free cash flow as possible through this acquisition engine that creates these great returns on capital. But Mark has expressed severe reservations about the morality of repurchases. The board and management have more information than selling shareholders. And Mark actually asked his outside securities counsel at one point about buybacks and was told that directors and officers cannot legally do buybacks while in possession of material undisclosed information. And so in Mark's eyes, to disclose more of Constellation's importance trade secrets, which may or may not be considered material undisclosed information, but are nevertheless closely guarded secrets, in order for them to be allowed to do buybacks would become a competitive disadvantage for the company and ultimately hurt long-term shareholders more than the buybacks help them. And he's also suggested that if they were to do a repurchase program, that it should be accompanied by a clear message from management that they believe the shares are undervalued, perhaps in a prospectus-like document attached to a tender offer or even a daily press release disclosing real-time buyback activities. The issue is that a very successful repurchase program involves buying as much as possible for the largest discount to intrinsic value as possible, which fundamentally is pitching management and the board against the selling shareholders to an extent that makes him very uncomfortable. Common theme across this entire conversation is how the business is really a reflection of Mark and his legacy and his decision-making. So maybe we just spend a little bit more time talking about the unique nature with which he manages his business and the way with which that permeates throughout the culture of the organization. So I would give a few examples to really bring this to life. The first is on the way that Mark communicates with shareholders about the valuation of Constellation shares. Because employees are required to invest a portion of their after-tax bonuses into common shares, we believe that Mark feels a sense of responsibility for the well-being of these employee shareholders, and his strong preference would be for the shares to trade at a fair multiple as opposed to a higher multiple, which, of course, would diminish his own net worth in the short run. He's periodically commented when he felt that Constellation's valuation had gotten ahead of itself. In 2019, he entered into an automatic share purchase and disposition plan, the details of which he openly disclosed and talked about, where he would sell shares of Constellation above intrinsic value, he would buy shares below intrinsic value. And at the time, the shares were trading well above his view of intrinsic value, and he hoped to signal this view to the market and temper some of the enthusiasm. Likewise, that same year, they issued a special dividend in an attempt to take investors' focus and really zero it in on the idea that, well, maybe Constellation won't be able to reinvest capital at high rates of return into perpetuity. Now, in both of these cases, he was unsuccessful. The share price actually continued to rise. But I think the ideas were novel, and his motivation behind them was very laudable and unique. 
another example that really brings this to life is in 2011, Constellation's two private equity sponsors were seeking an exit. And in an effort to find buyers for their shares and keep the company public and independent, Mark made an offer to prospective buyers that if Constellation didn't compound at at least 10% a year, he would personally backstop their investment by transferring to the buyer a portion of his own shares. And that was ultimately unnecessary, but it epitomized the notion of eating your own cooking, I think, to the maximum extent possible. And then the third piece I would just highlight, so starting in 2015, Mark stopped taking a salary and bonus and even stopped charging his travel expenses back to the company. And at the time, he explained that he had traditionally traveled on economy tickets and he had stayed at cheap hotels because he didn't want to, and he used this word freeload on Constellation shareholders and wanted to set a good example for the thousands of Constellation employees who are traveling around every month. And so as he was getting older, he was getting wealthier, he was willing to trade some of his own cash for first-class air, fare, and nicer hotels and started covering those costs themselves. So again, this is a very unique individual with a, I keep repeating this idea of a highly developed sense of moral responsibility for the shareholders, which includes, because of the way that he's structured the compensation scheme, the employees, the executives, and the board members. So just wonderful alignment between everybody involved. Software is in some cases an incredibly sticky business, but also subject to technology risk. And so as it becomes cheaper to produce new software products, the advent of artificial intelligence that people seem to be very excited about in the market... What are the potential threats for what could be construed or or thought of by outsiders as a somewhat slow-moving technology business in that there may be potential for disruption? As we discussed at the outset, a pretty important component of the moat for vertical market software is the idea that the market sizes for most of these niche verticals are just too small to justify the investment required to fund a new entrant. However, the upfront costs to create and distribute new software have declined meaningfully in the last couple of decades, thanks to tools such as cloud computing, which makes compute and storage and on-demand variable expense, or pay-as-you-go developer tools, and the internet for distribution. And there's plenty of capital willing to support and back up-and-coming software companies and entrepreneurs. So the question is, to what extent do new software as a service entrants developed in the cloud, funded by venture capitalists, really pose a threat to Constellation's businesses? You'll sometimes hear this referred to as the risk associated with microservices, which are small Lego pieces that can be quickly assembled at low cost and can be targeted at a specific niche vertical. And I think the key pushback, I would acknowledge that it is absolutely the case that the upfront costs of starting a new software entrant are lower than they've ever been before. The issue is that the switching costs associated with changing out a piece of software that's running your day-to-day business operations remains very high. It's a painful process. Most customers will avoid that as long as the software that they're using is working well. And that doesn't change as the cost to develop that new software comes down. The way to think about this, the framework we use is that the more customized the software, the more the switching costs. And so best positioned are incumbent software companies who are selling highly customized solutions to customers that have large IT budgets and value having a proprietary solution with maybe a data advantage as well. More at risk would be incumbent software companies who are selling low-priced software that has limited customization. The customers have smaller IT budgets. They can't afford the custom software or to own their own IT infrastructure. And so those are the customers that I think are more likely to switch over to a cloud-based multi-tenant solution. And so what Constellation has done is they've tried to, number one, make sure that they're proactively deepening the moat around all of their existing businesses. 
by ensuring that the capabilities are staying up to date with what those businesses require. And then secondly, their focus has been on highly customized solutions as opposed to those lower customized solutions that are probably more at risk to that multi-tenant solution. So that brings us to one last somewhat contentious topic that we'd be remiss not to talk about. Do you get the sense that Constellation underprioritizes its organic growth? Just to level set, Constellation's organic growth on recurring revenues have averaged 4% since the beginning of 2016 and has only been negative in one quarter in some of the worst moments of the pandemic. We wouldn't characterize 4% as unhealthy, but it is certainly lower than the organic growth rates that we've been observing at many other software businesses. So it's fair to ask why this is and whether it's cause to be concerned. Within that 4%, we believe there are many healthy VMS businesses growing organically in the mid to high single digits. There are some probably growing even more quickly than that. However, occasionally Constellation will acquire businesses that have declining organic revenues. Sometimes these are cigar butt value investment type acquisitions. Other times they could be situations where Constellation believes based on the benchmarking data and base rates that we discussed earlier that they can make meaningful improvements and turn the business around. For example, a few years ago, Constellation made a large investment in the healthcare space. They knew at that time that those businesses were likely to continue declining organically. And at this point, we estimate that that group of businesses is probably weighing down the Constellation-wide organic growth rates by roughly 100 basis points. But importantly, that was all baked into their acquisition model. The purchase price was low enough that Constellation felt that they could still earn an attractive rate of return, even with declining revenues. And this is really sort of the quintessential value investment approach. And we understand why investors aren't enthusiastic about these sorts of deals having to replace declining organic revenues isn't an ideal spot to be in. However, the key point is that Constellation is prioritizing IRRs and returns on capital. And organic growth is really only one component of calculating the IRR in an acquisition. Focusing too much on organic growth without paying enough attention to the price paid for that organic growth could result in overpaying and lower returns on capital. In an ideal world, Constellation would both maintain its IRR discipline and find ways to improve the organic growth. But our sense is there is an inherent tension between these two metrics that makes that difficult. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that Constellation doesn't care about organic growth. Mark is very thoughtful on the subject. He talks about it often. And he believes that there is an opportunity for the company to improve over time. However, return on capital is Constellation's North Star, if you'll forgive the astronomy pun. So I believe the organic growth conversation will always happen within the context of the returns on those efforts. The head office did a study at one point of all of Constellation's internal organic growth initiatives. And the conclusion was that the associated returns on the time and resources being deployed on those initiatives was really quite poor. And so, you know, in sum, this prioritization of return on capital, it takes discipline and there are absolutely trade-offs. Another example of the trade-offs inherent with prioritizing return on capital relates to the differentiation between strategic acquisitions and opportunistic acquisitions. 
So if Constellation were to embrace strategic acquisitions, which would involve paying higher multiples for businesses that fit strategically together with Constellation's existing businesses, they would probably have fewer verticals and each vertical would probably have more market share and potentially deeper moats. But this would come at the cost of a lower overall return on invested capital. And this is exactly how it played out with Jack Henry. Early in its trajectory, Jack Henry acquired vertical market software businesses at similar valuation multiples to what Constellation pays today. Over time, as the company got bigger, they were forced to pay up for acquisitions because they were focused on a specific vertical and there were only so many opportunities to acquire businesses in that vertical. And because they would pay up, they then had to seek out synergies and cross-sell opportunities in order to earn satisfactory returns on their capital. Today, Jack Henry has a lower overall return on invested capital, but a much more dominant footprint in its core markets compared to Constellation. But ultimately, we believe, and, and Mark believes, that return on capital is probably the single most important determinant of shareholder returns. And in the Jack Henry example, Constellation's higher return on invested capital has translated into a higher rate of per share compounding, which isn't to take anything away from Jack Henry at all, by the way, which has had just a phenomenal track record. But the comparison is instructive and it's worthwhile. And I think it helps bring to life why Constellation believes in this return on invested capital framework and is willing to endure the trade-offs associated with that prioritization. And so to bring this conversation to conclusion, it's obvious that you've spent a lot of time and energy studying this business and better understanding it and getting familiar with its management team. When you look across your portfolio and think about it from the perspective of an investor, and then the lessons with which you can share with managers that run the companies that you guys invest in, what are the lessons you take away as both an investor and what you would recommend to others running these companies as operators? My lesson for operators would be to think outside the box about the way that you carry on your business. We talked about how Constellation's board doesn't utilize a compensation consultant. They don't do quarterly earnings calls. They have always been willing to do what they think is right, even if it's very untraditional. And we've had conversations with publicly traded portfolio companies management teams, boards, where we've encouraged them to stop doing earnings calls because their business didn't lend itself to updates every 90 days, for example, or not paying a dividend if you have a tremendous ability to redeploy capital at high rates of return. And the concern is often what the impact will be in the near term on the share price and what will shareholders think. But Warren Buffett has taught us all, I think, that you get the shareholders you deserve. And so do what you think is right. Structure your business, your compensation philosophy, your relations with investors in the way that you think makes the most sense. And I think over the long term, I mean, look at Mark, he's constantly trying to get the valuation of Constellation shares down, not up. It's certainly not hurt their valuation at all to do things in this very unique way. And then in terms of lessons for investors, I think it ties closely to the lessons for operators. Be careful to judge things quickly that look a little bit differently. Constellation, for example, is not going to have the highest organic growth rates of any software company. But I do think they probably have some of the highest returns on incremental capital deployed. These different metrics are different ways to get to Nirvana. Well, Chris. Thank you for introducing us to this story. I think as Mark refers to them as high-performing conglomerates, this will make for a very interesting one to study, both on a historical basis and going forward. And we look forward to tracking the story. It's great to be with you. Thank you. 
To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 